Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Wages of Love. Intimacy in any relationship is hard work. Most people want the nearness and intimacy in their relationships, but aren't willing to put in the time, energy, and selflessness that it takes to obtain it. But when we look to Christ as our template for how to love, we are enabled to love Him as well as our spouse better and we find a greater richness, sweetness, and joy in so doing. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. The Wages of Love. The subtitle is The Dead Giveaway on this one. I sometimes like to hide my themes of what's going to come out in the message. This one I just sort of laid it all out there, wore it on my sleeve, a study in heavenly intimacy. Intimacy is sort of an awkward word for at least the, the male side of the body of Christ oftentimes, and it shouldn't be, it just is, especially depending on your background and what sort of masculinity you were trained in, but intimacy is one of those things that women are always wanting, like wives, they always want intimacy, and uh, men are always like, well, you know, there's certain aspects of that I'm really excited about, but, you know, what do you mean by that? And it usually feels a little invasive to a man who wants his space and his distance and he wants to sort of keep things his way, you know, with the TV and the sports game. And he has intimacy. He has intimacy with that crowd. When you're at a game, a sports game, I don't know if any of you grew up on sports, but I'll be in the Broncos stadium and my team will do something great. I'll turn around and I'll hug the guy behind me. No clue who the guy is. Spills beer on me even as I do it. I don't care. We have intimacy. It's the most bizarre thing. So men have a form of intimacy oftentimes, and it's a weird one. Uh, this is heavenly intimacy. And this is the form that lasts for eternity. And I'm going to talk about it from two different directions. Actually, you could technically say three. I just don't have the time in this message to talk about it from the third, but I'll bring it up. And that is intimacy with God, intimacy in a spousal relationship, and intimacy with family, whether that's children, parents, whatever it is, it's that dimension of life that we all know is of great significance in the kingdom of heaven, but it's also possibly one of the most difficult things any of us have ever walked through. You want pain? You bring up topics like this. I mean, if our deepest pains are from those closest to us. If you ever sense that you were hurt by God, which by the way is a misconception, God isn't out to harm you, even though we oftentimes get a interesting notion about what has happened. As I often say, when I'm talking about fortification, it's like we have this city, we're supposed to have a wall around our life, a fortified wall known as Jesus Christ. However, when we walk in disobedience, there's a gap or a breach that is made in our life. And it's like a legal access point for the devil. And the devil specializes in this. And so he sits there with his hand grenade and he pulls out the, the pin, sneaks inside your wall, rolls the hand grenade into your life and steps back outside, plugs his ears and disaster goes off in your life. The first thing you hear is, can you believe God did that to you? And we have a tendency to draw away from God because of hurt, disillusionment, and it affects something. We could call that something intimacy. But intimacy, by the way, with God was hindered a long time before uh, we arrived here. When we were even born, we were having struggles with God. And so that's a whole issue in and of itself. And then in our spousal or our marriage relationships, this is of the essence. Marriage is meant to reveal the kingdom of heaven. 
And most in the church today would chuckle at that and say, you, you meant to say that it's you know, a little taste of hell on earth, didn't you, Eric? No, it's supposed to be a taste of heaven on earth. And the fact that the experiential dimension of the church today has not declared that is one of the saddest statements in our modern day. The fact that gay marriage even has such strength in their appeal to say, what are you guys saying, that you have the corner on marriage? You know, look at God's form. Look at that. That's, is that what you're saying we should be protecting? You're denying us the right, two people that love each other, and you're going to hold on to your sacred biblical marriage, which gets divorced more than even non-Christian marriage? You know what? They have a point. And it's, well, the only way we can shut it up is by living, living out the truth of the gospel. And so things like this in this message is critical. It's actually, if you want to say it, this is a political message. Let's lay a foundation for how to change the world by being changed by Jesus Christ. The third one is the family dimension. You know, as a, as a parent with my children, you know, there's just different things that will violate intimacy. And a child will pull away at times if they feel hurt, if you over discipline in the way you do or you harm them, you discipline in anger, frustration, and a child can be estranged from their parents. And it's a, it's a violation of something, intimacy. But God designed family to function a certain way. And so as we would navigate through this, there's a lot of applications, and we could all get uncomfortable at different ways. I do not want any sharpened elbows into the ribs of the spouse next to you or the poor child next to you, whatever it would be, or as the child you know, to get your dad in the ribs, that oftentimes doesn't help the issue. That's called nagging. And you can read a few scriptures and Proverbs about that. <laughs> the wages of love. We've heard of the wages of sin, and it's death. But the wages of righteousness are life. It's peace. And so if you can show forth righteousness, then you will receive in reward life. And by the way, that life is eternal life. However, we can't muster up that righteousness, which means we get death. We have a covenant with death that is only to be annulled through death. Covenants can only be broken through death, so we're sort of in a bad situation. We have a covenant with death, and the only thing that can actually divide us from that covenant would be death, but then when we die, we're already dead. And we're dead in death. And that death is eternal. Uh, yeah, it's called bad news. So when Jesus came and he died, you need to understand the significance of us. When we believe upon him, we enter into his death. And his death becomes our death. And our covenant with death is annulled, and we are buried with him. And we're baptized into his death. And then when he rises again, because we're in him, his life is now our life. His death, our death, but his life, our life. And now we have a newness of life in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's a... Very important platform because we're going to talk about the wages, not of righteousness, even though love is the epitome of righteousness, it's that which fulfills the law. The wages of love, it's that which comes when you labor in the realm of love, as opposed to in the, the realm of selfishness, which most marriages, by the way, are all about selfishness, and when you labor in that, your marriage stinks. But when you labor in love, what are the wages? What comes of it? What is the reward for it? How are you paid back? Well, that's what this is about. So what exactly is intimacy? Some of the men sort of squirm in their seats. It's like, oh, this is a girly message. Eric, I thought you only gave manly messages. <laughs> well, every now and then I need to give a girly one. 
So what exactly is intimacy? Intimacy, drawing near with perfect confidence. I want you to think about that definition. When you have intimacy with someone, there's no barrier. There's no awkwardness. There is a perfect confidence, and you draw near to them. Like, for instance, you wouldn't move in to kiss someone if you felt awkward around them. That, well, I mean, there have been some, some movies, you know, where the young guy is, like, all awkwardly and moves in for the kiss, then he gets slapped. <laughs> but that's not intimacy. Intimacy is an open relationship that is accessible. There is no blockage in it. There is a closeness, and that closeness is invited. It's mutual. It's beautiful. It truly is. And so it's drawing near with perfect confidence. So here's three definitions for intimacy. First, nearness. Closeness, admission into the sacred. There's a dimension of your life. The temple of God is divided up into three sections. You have the outer court, you have the inner court, and you have the holy of holies. And the Jewish culture was allowed access into that, dimension, into that temple at varying degrees. And so they were, and same with, is your life. You're at the temple of God. And there's a dimension of your life where the Gentiles could be, and they can hang out. For instance, there's even aspects of your physical body. Your hand is something that you can stick out and shake without any sense of violation of propriety, of honor, of, of modesty. Isn't that interesting? But there's other dimensions of your body which are not meant to be shared. And they are meant to be covered. They're meant to be held back and kept for one. It's just sort of a strange phenomenon of how God created us. And so when you're dealing with this, nearness or intimacy is admission into the sacred. It's like you have been consecrated. You've shown that you value that which is sacred in my life. And so in a form of covenant, there is an allowance into a closer dimension to the sacred. Or what we could call the otherwise prohibited territory. Number two, it's affectionate friendship. It's not just nearness, but it's actual friendship, but it's affectionate friendship. It's the healing of all hurts, the removal of all impediment, the complete restoration of all trust, no barrier, no restriction, no wall of separation. If you hurt someone in your life, you'll notice that intimacy is immediately, uh, it falls apart, it, you don't have it. Because there's a break of trust, there's a break of closeness. We as men are famous for hurting our wives in some way, whether it's the tone of voice, something we said, something we did, and then trying to diminish it by saying, come on, can't we just move past it? Uh, I said I'm sorry. You know what it says in the Bible? You're supposed to forgive me. And the whole while, the wife is not against forgiveness, but oftentimes she feels a violation and something isn't being registered in the, in the man to recognize that he hurt her. And he doesn't understand that there's a vulnerability, and as a result, if he gets close again, he may hurt her again. And so there's a tendency to draw back. And that's a breakage of intimacy. In other words, when we violate someone, we violate intimacy. No longer is there a closeness. Sharing the inmost. I'm really fascinated by this definition of intimacy. It's revealing that which is inward or innermost. When you are intimate with someone, you will share things that are deep. You will share who you are. You will share your dreams, your thoughts, things that you would never dream of sharing with other people, but you're intimate with that person. And as a result, you find, like in marriage, you share, you're sh you share fears. I remember sharing with Leslie, it's like, well, I would never tell this to anyone. Here I am telling you guys. <laughs> I would never tell this to anyone, but uh, I really want to learn how to swim, 
But I don't like being in water because all the guys around me are like, come on, and they dunk me. And they're, I, I, when I go to family reunions, they'd always have like the, it was always water sports. I did not like water. Because when I was young, I'd get dunked. I didn't feel comfortable in water. I mean, I could get in it and float around and bob. But they had water skiing, and then they had the, uh, the what's the tire thing that you go behind the, what is it? Tubing. Oh, so the tubing, and guess what? They'll have a girl get in there, and they'll go all slow for the girl, and she'll bounce up and down on the waves. It's a whole bunch of guys in the boat. And then what do they want? Hey, Moody, come on. Like, no thanks, no thanks. Come on. The whole reunion, come on. So finally, guess what I do? Why? I'm not sure. But I get in the crazy tube. And what do they do? Their whole goal is to destroy me. <laughs> and you want to know why I don't like it. But when you have that dimension of your life that you're able to share, I remember Leslie was really cute because she knew that I wanted to feel comfortable in water, but I didn't want them to help me. I don't need them. I need someone who has my best interests in mind. So I remember she actually called up uh, one of my good friends who was just sort of this gentle elderly man who had a boat. And she said, Eric really struggles with this whole water skiing thing, but he really liked to learn, but he doesn't want to learn by someone like dragging him through the water and then laughing at him the whole time. So what do you think? So this man called me up and said, yeah, uh, would you like, I, I promise, I'm going to be, if you feel, don't feel comfortable, I'll stop. I'm like, all right, all right. This is like how, one of the first things when we first got married, Leslie was like, if you really want that, I'm going to help you get that. But it was like I was sharing this insecurity in me that I'd had all growing up, and I didn't want any of those guys to know it. And yet, when my wife heard about it, it's like she was doing whatever she could to help Eric become strong in the areas that I felt insecure. We went to Hawaii, and I remember I felt a little uncomfortable with the whole idea of boogie boarding, because that was water. And, you know, I didn't want to, like, tumble all over. So we got two boogie boards, and she went in there, and she was doing all her, her things. And she never pressured me because she knows that that was the worst thing. And she just sort of allowed me to take little steps in. And then I got used to it and I got down. And pretty soon I was bobbing up and down. And then pretty soon I'm riding a wave. Pretty soon I feel like a Hawaiian. <laughs> she never said, I told you it would be fun. She just got me a boogie board. And you see, intimacy is a trust where I know I can trust something to my wife and she won't hold it against me. She won't make fun of me for it, but I can share something that's a vulnerability in my life and she'll help me with it as opposed to harm me with it. Celebrating the work of the cross. Why, why should we celebrate it? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but let me give you a big one. For it has brought us near unto our God. The cross has actually created an avenue. You know how much we have violated our God? Why would he want us near? And yet... He has invited us near in and through his cross. He has made a way for us to come and approach him with intimacy. Nearness. Here's our definition. Closeness, admission to the sacred and otherwise prohibited territory. Hebrews 4. Let us therefore come boldly, confidently. Come, come near unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And grace is merely the life of God imparted to you. Can you get more close? Hebrews 10, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith. Could you, have you ever had it where you hurt someone and then someone comes up to you and says, no, no, go, go talk to them. I, they've told me that they've forgiven you. It's not an issue anymore. But you feel insecure because you know you violated trust. You know you did something to harm them. And what God is saying is, no, no, draw near. You see, if you're clothed in the blood of Jesus, all is dealt with, all is forgiven, all is made right. He wants you. Come near with a full assurance, a full confidence that it is God himself that invites you. So having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Second definition was affectionate friendship, the healing of all hurts. Wouldn't that be nice? You know what the cross allows us? It gives us access unto an affectionate friendship with God Almighty, where there's a healing of all hurts, the removal of all impediments, the complete restoration of all trust. No barrier, no restriction, no wall of separation. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened, made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. All impediment is removed. All barrier is removed. He took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Henceforth, I call you not servants. Listen, this is just amazing. For the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. And the third one, which is a pretty special one, sharing the inmost, revealing that which is inward and innermost. Now, what's amazing is intimacy. We understand intimacy from the dimension of, like, there's certain things inside of us that we've never really entrusted to anyone. Some of us talk too much. Some of us don't talk enough, maybe. But there's certain things in our lives that maybe we've held back, little desires that we have. Thoughts, insecurities, uh, that's like sacred territory. To think that Jesus gave up everything that was in him. He shared his inmost with us. He gave us his best. He's like, I'd like to share it with you. Even at risk of us trouncing upon it. He gave us his life, everything that he had. I mean, literally, the innermost of himself he poured out. Listen to these two scriptures that I'm going to read. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. Now, this word, gave up, is parodidomen, to give into the hands of another. Just think about intimacy in this context. To give into the hands of another, to give over into one's power or use, to deliver to one something to keep, use, take care of, or manage. Well, that's marriage. Uh, here's my dreams, my desires, my innermost thoughts. And you literally turn them over to be held. Jesus gives up his spirit to the Father. Talk about trust. 
here you go. It's the most precious thing I have. It's my life. And he literally entrusted it to the Father. It's an amazing statement. But then look at this next line. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he gave us the river of living water. That's living water. I think we've discussed that in here over the past few weeks. Blood in the Hebrew is life and water. That's living water. That's the river of life. And who did he break? Who did he pour it out for? That was for us. He shared, he gave up his spirit to the Father and gave his life to us for intimacy. Isn't that amazing? The labor of the Christian man. So I'm going to emphasize a Christian man. It does not mean that this is exclusive just to men. This is just a message on intimacy. However, I want to show you how impossible intimacy is first. And, and we're going to use a man as a sampling, which is, makes it a lot easier for me. Okay, let's just be honest about it. When you're a man, it's very hard to share about intimacy from a female perspective. It's very easy for me to do it from a man perspective. The labor of the Christian man. So a man goes to work in life. He wakes up in the morning, clocks in, clocks out at night. What's he doing? What's his business? What's he here for? A lot of us get it confused and we think that the labor of a man is, you know, working at Apple computers or for Google or something and that if we're doing good in life, we're making a lot of money. That isn't the labor of a Christian man. The labor of a Christian man is a little different than the world understands. But it's very important that we begin to wrap our mind around it. So we get paid. When we pop out of the womb, we go about our business. And we, we begin to do our work. And as we're doing our work, we're living in a fallen, decrepit world. And there's a law. It's called the law of sin and death. that hangs over us whether or not we acknowledge it or not. And that is, if you sin and you do not bear witness of perfect righteousness in all your thoughts, all your behaviors, all your actions, everything that comes out of your life, then you will receive death. The law of you sin, you die. It's the law of sin and death. And all of us are under it. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us die. All of us are living as dead men or dead women walking. We're dead. We're dead in our sin. And so the wages of our life as we labor as men on this earth we're getting something, and it's the wages of the law. What does the law pay you? Well, the law is going to give you something. It's a really good gift. We just oftentimes don't appreciate it. You could call it conviction. The law is telling you something's wrong with you because you're not living as you're supposed to live. One of the ways we understand in the New Testament is that the law is a schoolmaster which leads us to Jesus. So what the law does, the law can't save us, but the law can show us we need to be saved. So the way I could put it today is we get a keen sense of our need. It's like, whoa, I need help. Most of us as men don't like to admit that. You know, it's the old going for directions thing. I don't know how many of you men fit that uh, prototype man, but I sort of do. I do not like to ask for directions. I don't know. I don't like having to admit that because I don't like people that stereotype men to be right. And yet I really don't like asking for directions. I'll figure this out. And I have humbled myself many a time. Usually it's after the third trip around the block uh, to ask for directions. But it's sort of like that, where I want to figure it out myself first. I'm, gonna, I'm convinced that I have it in my own possession to solve this riddle. I do not need help. So as a result, the law has to do some more work. And it has to say, how you doing, Eric? Okay, I'm not doing that good, but I think I can figure this out. 
If I keep trying harder, I think I can work this out. Uh-huh. All right. One more trip around the block, Eric. So, Eric, how you doing? All right. God, just between you and me, I'm not doing so well. And I, I think I need directions. I think I need help from the outside. Oh, do you? Do you need another trip around the block? I think so. <laughs> so one more trip around the block is like, okay, God, I got it all figured out. I need you. You got a global vantage point here, and you know exactly where I'm supposed to go. Could you just tell me? I'll just say yes. That's what the law does. It gives us a keen sense of our need, and it pays out daily in ample portion. You see, if you're living under the law, you'll know that something's wrong with your life on a daily basis. Boy, my life stinks. Uh-huh. The law's telling you something. It's giving you a gift. It's paying you your wage. You're working for the law, and guess what? It's saying, oh, and here's your daily pay. You need Jesus. You need a helper. You need a savior. It's called the Messiah. You see, the law is a schoolmaster, and it's teaching us. The impossible commission. So what does the law state for us? Have you ever read the Bible and actually heard how you're supposed to live? Especially for us as men. I mean, it's the same for the women, but for us as men, we have a very unique calling. So this is the six spheres of a man's life. If you've ever heard the impossible life, the message that I gave, you'll recognize these six spheres. So we'll say, go and do. That's what the law will give you. Go, do this. And uh, come back and report to me about your excellent behavior. Well, what I'm about to read you, by the way, is impossible, just in case you're wondering as I'm going through it. However, it's your com commission, and you need to do it. So go and do. Your relationship with God needs to be a heaven-come-to-earth devotional life. Your wife, your relationship with your wife needs to be a fairy tale intimate relationship. Your relationship with your kids needs to de be demonstrated with world-class investment into their lives. Your friends and family, you need to be kind, consistent, honorable, and thoughtful in your remembrance of them and service under your friends and extended family members. Your business dealings, you need to be, have uncompromising excellence and diligence in all your business dealings and financial investments. And your ministry life, you need to have diligent givenness to the preaching of the gospel and the practical rescue of the lost, the dying, the orphans, and the widows around you. Now, I've spent a lot of my life examining this list. I esteem that list, and I want to be the fully orbed man. And so I've taken a few trips around the block uh, saying, I don't, I think I got this. All right, I got this. So Eric, do you need directions? Do you need some help? How about, how about Leslie? It's like, you know what? You're not really the fully orbed husband I thought you were going to be. Are you sure you shouldn't stop for directions? No, I got this. You see, we think we've got it. And how many of us have tried to get all six of those things down? Someone could investigate our life and have like a year study of our life and hang out with us all day long every day and give us a report card on all six of those arenas. And we'd be looking pretty bad. You see, we've been taking some trips around the block and here's my, my thought after evaluating that. I believe that a man, and this is a very well organized and very disciplined man, can succeed in 2.5 of those at any given time but he'll stink in the others. Now, he can spread out his points. Like, he can do a point five here, a point five here, a point five here, a point five here. He can spread it out. However, a man cannot, and I'm telling you, it's an impossibility, be great in all six of those simultaneously in his life. And as a result, where does that leave us? And all the women are here like, no, don't say that, because that's what you want to marry, don't you? You want a fully orbed man of God. Well, that's what's important about this message.
You see, in my own pockets, not asking for direction and not going in to, to Jesus and getting what I need, but literally do it, looking to myself, I cannot do it. However, the earthly salary, for all your hard work, you still don't have enough to pull off the impossible commission. So imagine, you know, I'm doing my labor and I'm working hard every day, but my earthly salary does not pay the bills for my calling. I see the standard, I see the life that I'm called to, I esteem it. Most guys tread upon it. They don't care about it. They burp and they scratch their way through life and they don't care. Their wives say, honey, I just wish you could be so much better of a man. They go, I am a great man. I'm better than Ralph down the street. Burp, scratch. They don't care. I care. God, you see my desire. I want to do it. But I can't. I esteem it. Remember Romans 7? I see it. I want to perform, but there's nothing in my pockets. My salary stinks down here on earth. I do not have what I need. Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In my own pockets, my own salary in this earth is not pain enough. I do not have what I need, resource-wise, to be able to pull off the life that I've been commissioned to live. For all the hard work, you still don't have enough to pull off the impossible commission. So instead of looking at all six, I'm going to look at three of those dimensions. God, wife, kids. And like I said, the kids' side. And for those of you that aren't married, it could be as easily God, parents, brothers, and sisters. Okay, this is the epicenter. This is where we're at. The gospel is proven first and foremost here. If you fail here, usually you're living somewhat of a fake life out there. You see, if you're not, first of all, specializing in those three, then something's wrong with your Christianity. And I tell you what, those three are the hardest. Most men, what do they focus on? Business. Some, ministry. How many kids were raised in a home where the man was off doing ministry all over the country, all over the world, and never at home? How many men have grown up in a study reading books and praying and not been with their kids? Kids are a hard battlefield. You know how hard it is late at night when your wife needs that one talk? Honey, I just, I need to talk. Have you ever felt so tired in your life? Hi, everybody. Uh, are you sure you need to talk tonight? Couldn't we do it? And she goes, no, you say that every night. Couldn't we do, well, I know I said that last night too, but no, I really mean it for tomorrow night. Oh, do you? You see, we're always tired. How we perform in the epicenter is the definition of the gospel in our existence. I remember one person saying to me, I didn't like the statement because my relationship with my mom was rather unhealthy at the time. I'd just become a Christian. I was at college, and every time my mom would say something, I would say the opposite. If she said black, I'd say white. If she said grace, I'd say law. I mean, we would take the opposite end of every conversation. I was always, I mean, and of course, I blamed it on her. She blamed it on me, and we were always just sort of at it. And my relationship with my brother, younger brother, I mean, younger brothers, they can't get a big hit. And so my job was to take the pin and constantly pop any type of pride he would ever think of drumming up. And so my relationships in my family were not very healthy. And this person comes into my life and says, Eric, do you know that you're only as holy as you are in your home? What kind of statement is that? Give me the chapter and verse for that. <laughs> I didn't like the statement because it was an indictment to me. Because I was loving. I was like praying for revival at college. I was laboring in prayer. 
I was going door to door at college and inviting people. I didn't know, really know how to share the gospel. But I was inviting people to the Bible study, which hopefully they'd share the gospel. I was at least doing that. I mean, I was outward. I was giving. Everyone was saying, Eric is just such a loving guy. Well, I asked my mom what she thought. I remember my mom looking across the table from me about this time. She's like, what did I do wrong? And I said, I think you did a great job. How are we doing in the epicenter? Saddling the fire-snorting stallion. So for those of you that are in Ellerslie, you've heard this before, but there's a big stallion here. And he has rippling muscles. I mean, you literally, you can see the muscle. And it's white, bright white. He, he's a fierce creature, and he snorts like fire and smoke. And he makes the horsey noises, which I'm not very good at imitating, so forgive me. But this is a stallion of stallions, the fire-snorting stallion. And when you catch a vision for the calling that we have, you know that you have to ride this. That's just part of the picture, and you know it. And so what do you do as a Christian? You throw your leg over the side of the fire-snorting stallion. Say, charge! The first thing that happens you get thrown off that thing. You see, you don't know what you're trying to ride. You mean well, don't get me wrong. I mean, you intend well, you see something, you see the vision, you want it, and what you're esteeming is good. It's the perfection of the law. It's the perfection of Jesus Christ. It's the life of Christ. It's the life of heaven come to earth. You're esteeming the right things, but you don't know what you're trying to ride. And so you swing your leg over the side of it again, a little trepidation this time because you're feeling the bruises from the last time you got thrown off, but you mean well. And so you say, charge! And you might stay on it for a couple seconds this time, and you get thrown off because you knew it was going to buck. And yet, what, two seconds? How you do it? You're not quite getting to your destination, are you? That mud pile that you're back in isn't quite where you were wanting to go. You see, when you left that mud pile last, you said, adios, I'm never coming back to you. So what's going on? What what, what is this? You don't want to have a relationship with a mud pile. You see those six things and you say, that's the way I'm going to live. And yet, in three and a half of those arenas, you're in mud. This is frustrating. We call it the cyclical pattern of defeat. Right? The wheel is turning around and you're on the top of the wheel. You're feeling all good. You're like, I got this down. And then you go under and then you start to figure it out again. Ah! Okay, I'm going to start a class on this. I think I can teach other people how to... (laughs) The cyclical pattern of defeat. And that's what happens to us. We keep throwing our leg over the side of the stallion. We're doing the right thing. We're esteeming the right end. But we can't stay on it. That's because we don't know what we're trying to ride. His name is perfect righteousness. And he's unrideable. And you can say, well, that doesn't sound right. No, I'm going to say it again. He's unrideable. There's only one horseman in all of earth's history that has ever ridden him. Your secret is found in what I just said. Because it could sound like despair. I remember when I was teaching Hudson the gospel, I said, who can go to heaven? And he thought about it, and he says, no one. After I told him about the law, and I told him about the righteous judgment, I told him about who God is, and how God works, and how his justice works, his answer was no one. And I said, you're right. Except for one. There's only one way to get to the Father. And unless you're in him, you have no access. The secret to riding that stallion is is really funny. 
I mean, it's so obvious that it's painful. You know who has ridden that stallion? Jesus. He's tamed it. He's harnessed it. And then he taps his lap. And he says, uh, just so you know, if you haven't figured this out, you can't ride this creature. Only I can. But I wrote it for you, so I've made a spot right here in my lap for you. Will you allow me to take you up and set you right in my lap and let me ride it for you? How do we as men handle that? It's like, uh, no way. I can ride that thing. And as a result, he says, all right, one more trip around the block. The law has to prove us ready. It has to show us need. So we finally come to that horse. All right, I'm climbing up into your lap. And for a man, that is, that is hard to climb up into the king's lap and say, I need you to write it for me. And yet that's Christianity. And unless a man humbles himself and enters into the kingdom as a little child, he cannot enter in. It starts that way. Saddling the fire-snorting stallion. I can't, but I must. That's the tension of the Old Testament. That's the tension of the life under law. I can't, but I must. I can't, but I must. You know what we've changed it to is, I can't and God doesn't care. That's modern Christianity. I can't, but God died on the cross. This tension is never supposed to leave. I can't, but I must. You see, the key is the I must leads you to the cross. I can't do it is what the law tells you. But it also says you must. You must do it. So that's what gives the cross value. When you say, I can't, but then Jesus died on the cross and say flippantly, and you remove the must, what you don't understand is your need for that cross. Your daily moment-by-moment need for that cross. Without that cross, I simply can't. But with that cross, get this, I can. But it's not me. It's him. And when I turn to him and I climb up into his lap, I can now do something that otherwise was impossible. It's the holy tension of the schoolmaster. So one of the key things that is proven with this tension is how much do you want it? Because when you're trying to get on that stallion and you keep going, throwing, you get, get, getting thrown off, what do you think God's doing? He's looking. He's saying, do you want this or not? Are you going to learn the lessons? Do you recognize you need a helper? Maybe some of us go around the block for eternity. <laughs> And keep saying, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. I don't know. I've only been in my body. I don't know exactly how it works in everyone else's body, but I know we have the same propensities. It's called pride. We want to do it ourselves, even for his glory. God, I can do this for you. He says, no, you can't. The sooner you come to that, and the sooner you allow the tension of that law to condemn you to the point where you say, I need a rescuer from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's a very important concept. We always say, oh, there's no more condemnation. There's no more condemnation. No, for those who are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, you've forsaken your old way of trying to do it in the flesh. And now you walk by the spirit in Christ, and now there is no more condemnation. But up until that point, that condemnation weighs heavy. The law is working. And it's saying, you need a savior. You can't do it, but you must. And if you don't, if you don't, Eric, do you see the penalty of sin? But I love you, and I'm wooing you to get up into my lap. 
Forsake your life. Forsake confidence in yourself. Give it up and come sit in my lap. How much do you want it? Enough to humble yourself? Do you guys remember my story about the 10 million mile high ivory wall? The 10 million mile wide ivory wall? And the 10 million mile, mile deep ivory wall? So those of you that were thinking, I'll climb under it or I'll, I'll dig a hole under it. No, 10 million miles deep too. On the other side is the kingdom of heaven. So many of us have tried to scale it. We gave up somewhere around the 10 foot, 12 foot height point. Some of us have tried to walk around it. I don't know how long it took us before we finally realized that doesn't work. Some of us have tried to dig underneath. You know, there is a way in. It's a way that we don't want to see, though. There's a little hole down there on the ground. Right in the dirt. Uh Uh-huh. Nice little hole. Just enough for you have to put everything else off in your life. Everything that would hinder you from going through that hole. You have to literally be stripped clean, get on your belly, and go through. And you're like, God, I... I could walk around, I could climb it, I could dig underneath. He says, no, you can't. I made a way. But that way starts with humility. Have you ever noticed that in marriage, well, for those of you that aren't married, maybe you haven't noticed this, but in marriage, the secret key is the same for the kingdom of heaven. When you're belligerent and proud, you notice you never get anywhere in intimacy. It just doesn't work. However, when you begin to humble yourself and say, I need a savior, I I really am a pretty rotten guy. I have an ego. I have an attitude. And you've noticed it. And I need to be changed. Instead of just saying, I'm better than Chuck down the street. That makes no difference. Has the law done its work yet? And said, I'm not measuring you by Chuck. I'm measuring you by me. Unless you are as he is, you have no entry. What? God, that's extreme. Uh, Well, call it whatever you want. That's why I came. I came to make a way for you so that when you believe upon me, you are clothed in my righteousness. You are brought up onto the steed and now I can live my life through you. The goal of the gospel, there is an answer to your agony. So I think I've hinted enough that you guys knew there was hope in this. It wasn't just some desperation message where we all leave in a mournful wail. The gold of the gospel, there is an answer to your agony. Uh, some of you that heard the message Five Arts of Intimacy a few years ago, this is a little excerpt. The land of Havilah. It's the land of shimmering golden beauty. It's really a fascinating thing. In Genesis, it talks about this land of Havilah. And there's a river that comes out of Eden and it divides and the river goes into multiple lands, but one of them is Havilah. Let me read you uh, a little quote about it. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became, and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pasan, that is which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and, on, and the onyx stone. It never talks about any of the other land, but it talks about Havilah. And one thing we know as Christians who have tried to read the Bible through how many times we pick up the Bible and I'm going to read it through. And we've read that scripture so many times in our life because we get to Leviticus and then die every time. And then we start back over in Genesis and we've heard about Havilah. You just may not have noticed Havilah. But in the land of Havilah, the gold is good. And so if you were going to inherit a piece of property, wouldn't that be a pretty incredible one to inherit? 
Imagine you were deeded the land of Havilah, where the gold is good, and there is bdellium in the onyx stone, and some of you are like, oh, that sounds fascinating. That's a good piece of land, in other words. I'm going to build on that. The deed. You know that you were given a deed? I know this sounds strange. Some of you, especially those of you that are poor, starving Ellerslie students, are like, what? What's this? You've been deeded something. You actually have ownership rights. In the person of Jesus Christ, in and through his shed blood, you actually have been granted, bequeathed an inheritance. And so I'm going to build on this concept that you were given a deed. A deed is typically associated with like a property. So you were deeded property. So the deed is yours, so what are you going to do with it? Could you imagine if you found out today that you had a deed to property and you just sort of threw it in the trash? Wouldn't that be sort of an awkward behavior? If you were deeded property, wouldn't you at least want to check it out? Wouldn't you want to scope out the land a little? And it might be sort of a, you know, junky piece of land. It's possible, but still you could say, I own some land. I mean, even if it was a bad piece of land, you could still sort of show it off every now and then, stick it out of your Bible at the top, it says deed. You know, and someone's like, what is that? It's like, I have a deed. I mean, use it somehow. So the deed is yours, so what are you going to do with it? Having a deed but not having the gold. What if you were given a deed to a gold mine? Just imagine. Just pause for a second. You were deeded a gold mine. And it's a gold mine that throughout history has produced the best gold. And it's right smack in the middle of Havilah. Imagine that you have a Havilah gold mine, and it's the best producing Havilah gold mine in the history of Earth. And you personally, have a deed to it. Wouldn't it be a terrible statement about your life to have a deed to the Havilah gold mine and have no gold? Yeah, that would be pathetic. And yet, welcome to modern Christianity. We have a deed to the Havilah gold mine, and yet we can show the world no gold. So what do you guys have as Christians? Well, you know, we have eternal life. We have eternal life. Show us the gold. Well, you know, one day when Jesus returns, maybe you'll see a glimmer. Supposed to see a glimmer now. When they look at our life, they're supposed to see Jesus. They're supposed to see the gold. They're supposed to see what we're mining on a daily basis. Do you see the kind of gold I'm getting? The world should behold the gold of Havilah. And they should say the gold in those people is good. Yeah, I saw some bedellium and onyx stone too. They have something. That's not being said of us anymore. What's happened to us? You see, we have a deed, but not the gold. The plight of many a modern Christian. So imagine that I was given a deed, and it came from my father. I inherited it. And it says, I can know my father has given me a deed. So intellectually, if someone said, so were you given a deed? True. I could answer right. I have a deed. I can believe the deed is authentic. Is it a real deed? Sure. Of course it is. Yeah. It's a real deed? What kind of questions that? I can believe that the deed my father bequeathed me is, in fact, the only deed that can authorize my access to his great fortune. Someone says, let me see that deed. I'm like, look at it. It's authentic. It's real. It's the only one of its kind. There's only one deed for this property, and I got it. I got it. I mean, you have the deed. You even know it's authentic, and you know it's a one of a kind. I can receive the deed from my father and actually hold it in my hand. I have it tangibly in my hand. I can squeeze it. I can crinkle it. I can fold it and stick it in my pocket. I literally carry it around with me everywhere I go and keep it on my person always. I can have legal right to all my father's gold and not actually ever have any gold in actual possession. Well, that would be a strange thing. Uh-huh. 
And it would be. And that's why this message is important. You see, we're going to be talking about intimacy. And the gold is the results of intimacy. We could say it's the labor of love. It's the wage of love. When you labor in God's mind with the skills and the tools that he's given you, what you get is gold. What you get is the evidence for the world to see that there is, in fact, gold in that mind that was deeded you by the Father. You have gold. However, you can have the map, you can have the deed, you can have all this in your possession, you can keep it in your pocket, you can know it all intellectually and not have gold. And that makes no sense. Why, if you have a treasure map, wouldn't you dig up the treasure? Why, if you have a deed to a gold mine, wouldn't you go after the gold? It's a good question. You know how many men in here are married to a gold mine? And I don't mean deep pockets uh, financially. I mean, they're a gold mine. You know how many of us as men have it, have the marriage certificate in hand, and we cherish our gold mine, and we think it's wonderful that we have a gold mine. It's really neat, and the thought of having a gold mine is wonderful, and at certain dinner parties, it's great to just know that you have someone across the room you can look at and go, whoo, it's wonderful, yet we don't have the gold from that gold mine. We have not performed the arts of intimacy. We have not acted out the gospel in our relationship, and as a result, received the wage of love. We have something, and it's not bad. I'm not going to criticize it. Sort of like having the gold mine. At least you have the gold mine. At least you receive the deed. At least you believe the deed is genuine. That's a start. But now let's actually go into the mine and start mining it. What's the good of having it if you don't mine it? So a proper response to a deed. Now let's look at the difference between what I just said and this. I must know about the deed. I must reckon the deed in fact mine. I have a deed. And you even sort of get a little jig in your leg even the moment you begin to think about it. I have a deed to have a little gold mine. <laughs> you know, those of you that are struggling financially right now, what would it feel like to know that you have a deed to the have a little gold mine? It's like, everything is solved. I must open it, read it, and know its contents. And have a full confidence that the writer of those contents has spoken truth. So when you read that, that deed, you believe it. What it's saying is true. And when it says it's yours, you know it's true. Where it tells you its location, you know that that is an accurate location. You believe the writer of that deed. I must present my life and body under the adventure of mining gold and sign up as a miner in pursuit of the promise of which the deed speaks. Oh, that sounds hard. Uh-huh. So I must present my life and body unto the pursuit of the gold. I've been told where it is. Now what do I need to do? I need to say, this body, this life is given under the pursuit of that which I've been given and bequeathed. I must exert and take real world steps, enter the mine. What? I actually need to go into the mine? Yes. I need to pick up the tools left me and start searching for gold. And you can say, oh, I'm tired even thinking about it. The whole while knowing that if I heed my father's instructions, I will find gold in abundance. I must do the work of a miner. I must obey the instructions of my father implicitly. What he says goes. When he says observe, I must observe. When he says wait, I must wait. When he says dig, I must dig. If I do the work of a gold miner and I implicitly heed my father's instructions, I will find the treasure. It's guaranteed. Slam dunk. You can say, how do I know I'll find the treasure? Well, you received the deed, didn't you? Do you believe the deed is yours? Well, yeah. Well, then did you read the deed? Do you know what it says? Do you know where to go? Yeah. 
You heed what it says. You do what it tells you to do. I guarantee you, based on the nature of God who cannot lie, you will receive it. Fact, that's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. I believe it. Why do you believe it? Because God said it. God, who cannot lie, has spoken to me. There is gold in that gold mine. I'm going to get it. And you will get it. Opening the deed. So imagine that this deed came with a letter, like a cover letter. Or maybe even this cover letter is the deed. It might even be a better way of looking at it. So it's the, there, I'm giving you three things. The gift, the promise, and the commission. This is a letter from your father, and he's bequeathing to you the gold mine. So listen to these, the, the way, I broke it up into gift, promise, and commission. You'll understand that as we go. My son, Eric, so you have to stick your name in there. Herein lies the Havilah gold mine. It's yours, 100% yours. Whoa. This mine is guaranteed to yield. Uh, wow. Guaranteed? How many mines come with a guarantee? Mine does. I have a gold mine, by the way, that comes with a guarantee. I know it will produce gold. Though at times it may appear to have run dry. You ever notice that? That God's gold mine seems to appear to run dry at times? Listen closely to what the Father says. I promise you that there will always be a fresh vein of gold to follow. You must look for it. Study it. Get to know it. And never, and I mean never, will you go without. If you seek gold, you shall find gold. This mine will certainly reward you if you diligently seek its riches. You are penniless and unable to support the high calling you've received on your own earthly salary. See, God's just being blunt here. He's saying, buddy, I'm giving you a gift, but you also need to recognize something. You need this gift. If I don't get it, give it to you, you cannot function in this life. Your earthly salary cannot support your calling. I have commissioned you to change the world and to bear my name and to be a bearer of my image. You can't do that on your earthly salary, which is why I bequeath to you this mine. You are penniless and unable to support the high calling you've received on your own earthly salary. I understand this and therefore have bequeathed you this mine as the means of financially supporting the gargantuan assignment I've given you. As your father, I heartily exhort you, even command you, to not take this mine for granted, to, nor to forsake its great wealth. Mining is difficult work, and no doubt there will be times in which you desire to see if your own measly paycheck can sustain you. You see, when you go down to that mine, you realize you have to break a sweat. When you realize that it takes time, if any of you have ever tried to study the word of God, you're like, this isn't easy. I thought this was going to be easy. Well, who told you that? If anyone tries to con you into hearing that mining for gold is easy, that's not what we say. However, gold will be found. Now, I don't know if you've translated this yet, but that gold mine is Jesus. And we've been given the inheritance of Jesus Christ, made available to us in the person of Christ. We have received a deed. And as we explore his word and as we explore his person, we will find that which we need for our calling. So as your father, I heartily exhort you, even command you to not take this mind for granted nor forsake its great wealth. Mining is difficult work and no doubt there will be times in which you desire to see if your own measly paycheck can sustain you. I assure you now that it will not and never will be able to. So quit yourself like a man, Eric, and go to work. If you heed my directive and embrace this high calling, you will have riches to spare. I'm eager to witness how you steward this grand gift I've entrusted you, your beloved father, Abba. Ah, what? I don't know if you've reckoned yourself a recipient, 
but we have something far better than a gold mine. That's just a way of expressing it. We have something far greater. Heavenly doing is a bad thing in Christianity oftentimes, the way we think, to do anything. We're not supposed to do any work. We're supposed to just believe. You know that believing is the work of heaven? That's how the kingdom works. You're supposed to believe. So let's get to work. Heavenly doing. Not the insufficient work of the flesh, the labor of law, but the labor of the spirit, the labor of love. Do you know that you're supposed to go to work every day? Jesus was about his father's business. Jesus, you're not supposed to be working. You see, faith without, the Greek says, ergon. That is a labor, but it's a spiritual labor. Faith without a spiritual labor is dead. You can believe in the deed, but if you don't go into the mine to get the gold, you have no gold. Faith or a deed without mining labor is no gold. It's another way of saying it. It's dead. There's no, nothing to it. What's the good of having a mine when the father returns to say, so how'd you do with your mine? Well, I have the deed still. I, I buried it in my backyard just for when you'd come back and I, I dug it up and here it is, covered with a little dirt, but I still have the deed. You have the deed and no gold? You see, I gave you grace. I gave you an inheritance of grace and I told you to mine it. And I said, if you didn't, you would have nothing. You've run out of oil in your lamp and the bridegroom has returned. So there's five arts to gold mining. Even though I'm not a miner, I do understand what it takes to, to mine in a general sense. First, it takes time. You know that if you don't give time to the mine, you will not get gold out of the mine? Same is true with God, and the same is true with your marriage, same is true with your kids. This is the epicenter of intimacy. This is how it works. What I'm about to go through is how the labor of love works. It demands time. I remember A.W. Tozier saying, the man who would know God must spend time with him. It's the most basic statement, and it's like an aha for us. Like, oh, you mean I actually need to spend time? Uh-huh. You see, time is critical. If you're going to get gold out of that mine, what do you need to do? You need to spend time in that mine. The same is true with your spouse. If you don't spend time with your spouse, you actually will not be able to glean that golden intimacy out of that relationship. So imagine that you go to the mine and you just sort of hang out. And you're like, so how much time am I supposed to spend in here? Eric, you gave this message on intimacy. So I am, uh, I've, I've been giving a half hour every day in the mine. So you sort of sit next to your wife, like on the couch, and you're like this, and you're like this. And then ding, it's like, whew. All right, how are we doing in the intimacy department? Time itself isn't what causes intimacy. Time is an element or an ingredient any more than flour is bread. You need the flour, and if you don't have the flour, you don't have bread. Without time, you're not going to have intimacy, but time itself does not breed intimacy. It's an element of it. And so many of us put in time, like with our kids. It's like, Daddy, could you wrestle with me? And you're tired, so you just sort of sit there like a lump, and they climb on you. I have done that at times, okay? And so, but in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, this is wrestling. I'm wrestling. I'm wrestling. I just am really tired right now. Or how about the, your kids come up to you and want to show you something like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Your mind is somewhere else. You see, you were in the vicinity of them. You actually had some form of a conversation with them, and you could notch that up as, oh, that was a good 15 seconds right there. That's not the right sort of time. That's not what we're talking about here. You see, this is a time that is given to mining. I'm here to mine. 
You see, if it's time just to be in the mine and stare at your watch and say, ding, and then say, all right, I put in my half hour in the mine today, you're not going to get gold. But if you go into that mine to say, roll up your sleeves, I'm here to get gold. Well, you're going to find gold. And that's the right sort of time. Finding the veins of gold. So what do you need to be able to find the veins of gold? You need to be observant. You know, the same is true in your relationship with your family, in the relationship with your kids, in the relationship with your wife, in the relationship with God. You have to study. It's called biblical study as a Christian discipline, but that's what it's for. Biblical study in and of itself, by, by the way, doesn't necessarily give you the gold. However, it will if you have the right heart towards it because you desire Jesus. And when you go, you start doing this in your spouse, relationship, your relationship with your spouse, or your relationship with your kids, you just think about them. You observe them. You ponder them. As we as men oftentimes have talked about, that you want to get a PhD in your wife. You know, you might be uneducated in every regard, but you have a doctorate in your spouse and in your kids. You're the resident expert on earth in regards to their life. And if there was ever a question, you'd be the one to go to. You know them. You know what moves them. You know what they need. You know what they would bring them to life. You know their deepest pains. You know their greatest joys. How do you know it? You've spent time with them and you've studied them. And as a result, you're well on your way to finding gold. If you were just in that mind looking at your watch, you're not going to find gold. But what if you're in that mind looking? What if you are looking, following the instructions of your father, saying, look over here? And you begin to look. Remember they fished on one side of the boat and didn't catch anything? And Jesus says, well, let's try this side. What are you going to find? You're going to catch some fish. The same is true with being in that mine. You go into that mine with Jesus, and what are you going to find? You're going to find gold. Third, mining the gold. Wouldn't it be strange to find a vein of gold and then just stare at it? Sing a song to it? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to mine that. And yet that's hard work. You have to break a sweat to do that. And that's the same with every study, every pursuit. You can give a passing interest in your spouse. You can give a passing interest in your in your children, you can give a passing interest in God. You're not going to get the gold. You have to go after him. You have to dig. You have to labor. Four, bringing the beauty into the open air. In, in Christianity, what you see is stillness. It's biblical study. You see meditation. You know, once you meditate upon it, it stirs your affections. It's like seeing a sunset. When you see a sunset, does someone have to say, say it? And you're like, all right, it's a beautiful sunset, all right? No one needs to force you to say it. It elicits praise. And so when you see beauty and you study it and you appreciate it, you look upon it and say, did you see this? You have to speak. You can't help it. So it comes out. And it comes out in our relationship with God and shouts, a voice of triumph. It comes out in praise. It comes out in worship. You are amazing. You've seen it. You've meditated upon it. Bringing it into the open air, this is like praise, worship, where you literally have meditated upon the beauty. You have seen it. You beheld it. And what do you do? You have to say something about it. You have to praise it. In a marriage relationship, it is literally a form of praise. It's not the praise of God. It's not worship in that sense. But what do you see? You see your wife, and what do you say? You look beautiful. You're an amazing woman. And five, wielding its power in the marketplace. You actually have power. You have gold. You know when you get that gold up out of that mine? It's valuable. And now you have a commodity in this earth. The same is true in the kingdom of heaven. When you get gold in your study of scripture, you actually now can live it. 
And so when you have real faith, it's proven, it's tried like gold. You know that the way we interact with heaven is with a commodity? It's like uh, currency. It's like, God, I got some faith here. And he goes, is it real faith? Yeah, tried and tested, proven, refined. So I'm going to put it on the table. I want that promise over there. And he goes, you got it. You see, we gain the goods of heaven and the promises of heaven in and through faith. And so we mine it in Jesus Christ. We believe with a robust faith. We bring it into the open air and say, have you seen this world? I'm going to my God. I'm trading in this for more of him. You see, we are getting the goods of heaven. Sacred results. The outcome is real and tangible, not theoretical. When we follow Jesus, we actually get real results. It's not just a concept of, well, you get eternal life someday. You actually get eternal life now. I don't know where everyone gets this notion of someday. Eternal life is the life of God. It's eternal. And you have that gift today. That mine is available today. And if you actually mine it, do you know that you'll come out with a chunk of gold today? Real gold. Is that worth something? Yeah, in our natural realm it is. The same is true in the spiritual realm. You will actually get substance today and be able to transact with it in a spiritual manner and instead of just flailing about with your own earthly salary, now you suddenly have the salary, the wages of heaven. You're receiving his reward. That gold is his. And yet he allows you to use it in this world to do his business. You have access to his wealth. And that wealth is so utterly astounding and it's measureless and most of us have never even spent the time to start digging for it. The dangers of picking and choosing our labors. If you throw out the inconvenient duties requisite for mining Havilah gold, then you end up with only the glorious possibilities and never the heavenly realities. If you don't like the fact that you need to mine, that you need to break a sweat in this Christian life, that you actually need to study, that you need to roll up your sleeves and start hammering and digging. If you don't like the fact that it takes time and you want to spend your time on yourself doing something easy, then you will always have glorious possibilities in your life. You can carry around that deed, but you'll never have the heavenly realities. You will not have the substance of what Jesus Christ gave you at the cross. The golden reward. Well, what comes of it? Well, I oftentimes call this the five arts of intimacy. You see, when you take a relationship and you apply these tools that God has given to us, it's the heavenly doing of Christianity. It's not just knowing that there's a deed, knowing that Jesus is out there, knowing that I have access into this throne room. It's doing it. Don't be a hearer only, but do it. And when you do it, you get the good stuff. So the golden reward, intimacy, that which is gained through the labor of heavenly love. Wanting nearness without the cross. You see, we want nearness to God, but we don't want the cross. You know, I want nearness to my wife, but I don't want the cross. You see, the cross means I have to deny myself, I have to humble myself, I have to admit that I can't do it on my own. Hey, I got some talents, I got some abilities, I can do this. We want nearness without the cross. However, what does the Bible make clear? You can't have nearness without the cross. And that's not just with Jesus Christ. In your spousal relationships, in your relationship with your kids, any relationship, you want heavenly intimacy. I'm not just talking about earthly intimacy. That's all over the place. I'm talking about heavenly intimacy. The sort of intimacy that never waxes old. That it gets more and more beautiful and lustrous with time. You have it, but you need the cross in order to get it. 
So desiring sacred results from fleshly actions. I'm going to find out how to get there. So I take loop around the block, loop around the block, loop around the block. I want to reach my destination where I can say I didn't need directions. I figured it out all on my own. I did it. I did it. And God says, no, a few more laps. You can't do it, Eric. And he's not trying to rub it in and make us feel bad. He's given us the state of reality. You are not equipped to do what I've called you to do. I have a deed for you, Eric. Your earthly salary is not mustering it, is it? It's not. You can't, but you must. You must live this way. It's a command. How in the world are you supposed to be perfect as he is perfect? How are you supposed to be holy as he is holy? How are you supposed to turn the other cheek when they spit upon her or strike you on one? How are you supposed to give them their coat? How are you supposed to walk the extra mile? How are you supposed to rejoice always? How are you supposed to be without spot or sin or stain? God, I can't, but I must. You want nearness, you need the cross. That's the only answer to our dilemma. So the epicenter of a man's life, God, wife, and kids. The five arts of intimacy. So we'll first go through the wedding edition. So this is in regards to a man and his wife, or a wife and her husband. Five tools that make a marriage beautiful. Number one, the art of solitude and stillness. You're going to notice that these parallel with the arts of mining. First, you need time. You need time. And in marriage, you just need time. It's the art of solitude and stillness. Time dedicated, we can call it time given, time spent, time purposely directed in the principal attribute of a, is a principal attribute of a working, growing, and ever maturing love story. This time doesn't have to be filled with noise, with action, or with activity. This time doesn't need to be marked by some gain, some benefit, or some calculable benefit. Boy, that's an interesting uh, saying. Just, you're getting the idea of benefit there. It is time that is fully offered and made available without need of even the slightest compensation that truly yields the greatest joy in intimacy. We as men, and I don't know, maybe women function the same way, but we wanna have some benefit by spending time. It's like, so, you mean, you and I are just gonna hang out together tonight, and what comes of it? Like, what is the results? Uh, Will other people think highly of me? Will uh, it earn us more money, and we'll have money in the bank by the time we're done? We want a, a benefit. When you start approaching relationship that way, what your benefit is, is intimacy. The gold that you're getting is not that type of gold. It's it's intimacy. You can gain intimacy through this. You're gaining a closeness and a nearness, and through that, there's a glory that goes to God. Number two, the art of intentional study. In, In the Bible, we'd call this biblical study, but in a marriage, it's intentional study. Affectionate observation. Great love is a result of great observation, but there are two ways to observe. One way is to observe with a critical eye, seeking fault, weakness, and frailty. The God way, however, is to observe with an eye for all that is lovely and lovable. When a spouse studies their spouse with a desire to truly know them, understand them, appreciate them, and more effectively serve them, then that spouse will find that intimacy will find them. A spouse that feels known, understood, and appreciated is a spouse that is open to closeness and to receiving expressions of affection. One of the things that's very common is you fall in love with, and you get married and right off into the sunset, and you noticed all the virtues, all the qualities that were attractive, and suddenly something shifts. Life has demands, and it's not always easy, and you were expecting a good feeling all the time, and you're not always getting a good feeling, so... Certain things have dampened your life. It's sort of proven that 
somewhat challenging, and your spouse has gotten under your skin a few times. They don't, uh, you know, uh, put the toilet seat down the way they're properly supposed to. There's various things that create some of the most ridiculous arguments in marriages you've ever heard. Some of you say, I will not argue about that. Well, I'm just saying it's very easy, especially when you be, allow a decomposition to come in. You don't have the cross at the center. It's very easy. But one of the things that can easily happen is you begin to see everything that's wrong with the person. And you, begin, you gain a PhD in their weaknesses. And you can tell the world. And if anyone ever gets that close to you, it'll come out. It'll just dump out on them. Yeah, yeah. And they did this again. Can you believe that? Now you've become an expert on what's wrong with them. And as a result, there's going to be an estrangement in the relationship. Intimacy is being blocked. It's when you're purposely choosing to focus on that which is beautiful and lovable in them. You see, we're caterpillars. And yet Jesus, for some reason, sees a butterfly. And so he says... I know what I've called you to. He's like, you put up with this? How do you put up with my caterpillarishness? He says, because I know what I've called you to. I know how lovable and lovely you can be. You see, somehow he's able to see past just the earthen side, and he sees that heavenly beauty shining forth. Number three, the art of loving meditation. Purposeful remembrance. Thoughtfulness is the spark plug of a great marriage. It is so easy to get distracted and forget the things that matter most, but when a spouse labors to remember all that is lovely and lovable about his or her spouse throughout the day, the stage is set for intimacy to thrive. A spouse that feels remembered, thought about, and considered is a deeply happy spouse. This is a hard one. Uh, it's very easy to remember someone when you're falling in love with them and so you're thinking about them all the time and so you got some love notes and some flowers. And then you get married and life gets busy. You know that it's a deliberate act of the soul. Just like going down, don't just go down and clock in and clock out in the mind. Stare at the walls for a little bit. Yeah, see some gold over there? A ah, little gold over here and then check out. You have to mine. You have to pursue it. You're after something. And thoughtfulness is part of that. One of the, and I don't know if it's just a guy thing, but we are, tend to be very focused. Like, I can't even pull weeds and talk at the same time. And so I often say, well, you know what? I'm going to be, everyone would know, I'm fully given to that which I'm engaged in. However, in the midst of my guyishness, I can't forget the epicenter. And so, as a matter of principle, my life is built around the discipline that if my wife ever needs to access me, she can. If my children ever need me, they can access me. If my God ever requires me, I have to drop whatever I'm doing at that moment, and I belong to them. That is my priority, and I need you to see that in me. It's hard at times. It's inconvenient at times, but that's what matters. And I am a classic illustration of one who can forget about thoughtfulness. I can. I can mean well and never write that note that I was getting up early in the morning. I even got up early that morning to write a love note, and what did I do? Oh, boy, what was I studying again? Oh, that was an interesting thought. I get into this deep study. Next thing you know, I wrote a love note to God called a sermon and forgot to write the love note to my wife. You see, it's very easy, and I don't think we're graded at the level of perfection with this. Thank God that he is perfect on these things. However, if we want intimacy, these are the tools, and so it's a purposeful thing. It's almost like we need a, a group of men that it, it's like every day one calls up everyone else's. Have you remembered? Thank you. Thank you. 
And it's the small things that need to be remembered. Sometimes it's the simple things. Like what I've found is it's not the expensive things. We always think diamond rings and it's like, oh, I can't afford that. You know that for Leslie, some of the most special moments are when I've remembered her favorite licorice and I grabbed it. It's like, why would that matter? It's thoughtfulness. And when a woman feels remembered in a man's life, it causes them to open up at a deeper level. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Purposeful remembrance. Number four, the art of affectionate expression. So when you are meditating upon them, when you're thinking about them, out comes the love note, out comes the praise, out comes the thoughtfulness. The words of adoration. When a spouse studies the one they love to discern everything lovely and lovable about them, and then they meditate and daily remember these precious qualities, words of adoration come naturally. When one beholds beauty, strength, and grandeur, there is never arm twisting required in order to get them to say, wow. A marriage that continually states, wow, is a marriage that will always thrive. And number five, the art of vulnerable communication. There has to be communication. It has to be of the vulnerable sort, but that comes as a result of the four things before it. It's very hard to skip those things and just get gold. It's very hard to have closeness if you haven't spent the time. If you haven't given yourself to the pursuit, if you haven't been thoughtful in your remembrance, if you haven't been affectionate in your expressions, trusting openness. It takes a great deal for true trust to be established. Have you ever noticed it doesn't take much to break trust, but it takes a lot to establish it? But a marriage built on the first four of these five arts is one in which true trust can flourish. And this trust is a soil in which the depths of honesty, openness, and vulnerability can grow. It is in this soil that the most precious communications can take place, heart to heart, deep unto deep, spirit to spirit, and this is intimacy, heavenly intimacy. So we had the wedding edition, now this is the Jesus edition. Five tools that keep the spiritual fires burning. The art of solitude and stillness. The art of solitude, well, it's the same art. Time dedicated, time given, time spent, time purposely directed is the principal attribute of a working, growing, and ever-maturing relationship with the king. This time doesn't have to be filled with noise, with action, or with activity. This time doesn't need to be marked by some gain, some benefit, or some calculable benefit. It is time that is fully offered and made available without need of even the slightest compensation that truly yields the greatest joy of intimacy. The same way a marriage works is the same way the kingdom of heaven works. The art of biblical study is also the same as in the marriage, the art of intentional study. Affectionate observation and pursuit. Just imagine your relationship with Jesus on these terms. Great love for Christ is a result of a great observation and great pursuit of Christ Jesus in his revealed word. But there are two ways to observe his word. One way is to observe with a critical eye, seeking fault, weakness, and frailty. The God way, however, is to observe with an eye for all that is lovely and lovable. When a Christian studies the King of Kings with a desire to truly know him, understand him, appreciate him, and more effectively serve him, then that Christian will find that intimacy with Christ will find them. As it says in Jeremiah 29, 13, and you shall seek him and find him when you seek for him with all your heart. Number three, the art of biblical meditation, which is the same as in the wedding edition of the art of loving meditation. Purposeful remembrance. Thoughtfulness is a spark plug of a great Christian life. It is so easy to get distracted and forget the things that matter most, but when a Christian labors to remember all that is lovely and lovable about Jesus Christ throughout the day, the stage is set for spiritual intimacy to thrive. When a Christian thinks on the word of God throughout the day, then the person of Jesus Christ will be paramount in their life. Things that are lovely, noble, pure, and of good report will be the substance of their thoughts, and closeness to Christ will be a natural byproduct. The art of heartfelt worship. Words of adoration. When a Christian studies Jesus Christ and meditates daily upon his preciousness, words of adoration and praise come naturally. 
When a Christian beholds Christ's beauty, strength, and grandeur, there is never arm twisting required in order to get them to shout, wow. A Christianity that continually proclaims wow is a Christianity that will always thrive. And the art of prayer. Isn't that an interesting one? We don't have the typical kind of communication that a husband and wife would have, but we have communication. It's called prayer. Trust in openness. Faith and unshakable confidence is the bulwark of a working relationship with God. A Christianity built on the first four of these five arts is one which can, which, in which true faith can flourish. And this faith is a soil in which the depths of honesty, openness, and vulnerability can grow. It is in this soil that the most precious communications can take place, the most precious prayer life can prosper, heart to heart, deep unto deep, spirit to spirit, and this is intimacy, heavenly intimacy. The heavenly pattern for the husband, responding to the impossible commission. Do you guys remember how impossible it was? Remember those six things? Yeah. You can't, but you must. Do you guys feel the tension in that? You can't, but you must. Six things you need to be excellent at to declare the kingdom of heaven on this earth. The world's watching. Where's the gold? Responding to the impossible commission. Husbands, listen to this line. This is so, I know you know this, but listen to this. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Uh, You can't, but you must. Did you just hear what it said? You're supposed to love your spouse as Christ loves his spouse. The same way. How does he love his spouse? Well, perfectly. Without flaw. He will gladly lay down his life and suffer grievously to give them life. That's the pattern. That's the model. So, do it. Go, do it. Take a few trips around the block on this one. Until you finally come back to Jesus and say, I, 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 I can't love my spouse the way you love them. Something's wrong with me. He says, I know. Are you ready to get up in my lap? I am. Every single one of us as men in here, we might as well just face it instead of argue it. We need to get into the lap of Jesus. Only he can do this. And when he gets a hold of our lives, there's nothing more precious to a wife than a man that rides in the lap of the master horseman. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth and be thou ravished always with her love. That's a pretty amazing statement for all you romantics in here. Surveying the land of promise, 11 attributes of the heavenly groom. Moses stood on the the Mount Pisgah, and he looked out at the land. The law can show you. It can see it. And so we're going to take a high hill of Pisgah, and we're going to see the land. He saw the Savior. He saw the promise. He saw the Messiah. So let's see the Messiah, the 11 attributes of the heavenly groom. He's the advocate or the defender. He's the fan, or we could call him the biased. He's the boaster. We could call him the talker-upper. The partner, we could call him the helper. The student, or the expert, the PhD. The friend, the loyal no matter what. The counselor, the bringer of truth and perspective. The encourager, the one who always sees the silver lining. The thoughtful, the considerate, the gift giver. The affectionate, the intimate, call him the lover. The empathizer, the sharer of sufferings. I just described to you the king of kings. He's a pretty amazing man. And I know all the rest of us guys in here sort of need to wiggle in our seats on this one. However, this is the standard, and God says you must. And we say, I can't, but I know you can. So let's just freshly get up into his lap as we go through this. The impossible commission and the one that every single Christian husband ought to carry out in the grace of the Almighty. The advocate, the defender. My wife needs to know that I will stand for her, protect her, 
physically, spiritually, and emotionally. I will be the first sufferer. As Jesus stood in the gap for me, it is my great privilege to give up my life for my beloved. Nothing touches my bride. The fan, the biased. Have you ever seen a man who is so utterly biased about how his wife is the best wife on earth? All the other husbands are like, Pfft. But every other wife is like, come on, honey, argue with him. <laughs> I am incurably biased in favor of my wife. She is the most precious, most beautiful, most talented, most virtuous, most everything else that matters woman that ever existed. I am her biggest fan, and I can't help but brag about her marvelousness. You go, girl! <laughs> Number three, the boaster, the talker-upper. This isn't the flatterer, by the way. I am blind to my wife's weaknesses. Haven't you seen this about your wife? No, no. Well, what about this? No, no. I'm blind to my wife's weaknesses. As far as I'm concerned, she doesn't have any. In fact, I can only see that which ought to be praised. I'm her self-appointed bragger. I'm her built-in PR department. Have you seen my wife? She's simply amazing. The partner, or otherwise known as the helper. If my wife needs a hand, look no further than my own. In fact, take my hand, my other hand, my right and left legs, my back and my two shoulders too. Put your burdens on me, dear wife. I'm built strong so that I can serve you. If a baby is crying, let me go help them. If a room needs to be picked up, you stay seated and let me get it cleaned up. If a dish needs to be scrubbed, I'm on it. We're in this thing together. The student or the expert, the PhD. If there is something to know about my wife, then I'm going to make sure I know it. I desire to be Earth's resident expert on my wife. I must know her longings, her dreams, her fears, and her insecurities. And I don't just know my wife for the sake of gaining random trivial data, but for the sake of serving her better as a husband. The friend, the loyal no matter what. If hard times come, I will still be here. If accusations come against you, I know the truth. If you lose your health, I'll remain by your side. If you lose your physical beauty, my devotion to you will not wane in the least. I'm here always and forever, and I consider it my great privilege to call you my dearest friend. Number seven, the counselor, the bringer of truth and perspective. When my right wife is struggling to see straight, it is my privilege to be the one ready to supply God's word. When shadow sweeps across our living room, it is my opportunity to turn on the light of scripture. When anxiety knocks, I must hit it in the teeth. When foreboding baits, I must strike hard and fast with the sword of truth. When false accusation, mockery, and lie, lies fill the airwaves, it is my privilege to trump them with the power of a heavenly perspective. Number eight, the encourager, the one who always sees the silver lining. No matter what, I have words of life for my wife. I must never be the source of anxiety or depression, but rather the source of life. Even in the darkest hour, I must see the victory of Jesus, and I must labor to fill her mind with thoughts that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, virtuous, praiseworthy, and of good report. Number nine, the thoughtful the considerate, the gift giver. I must labor to keep my wife always in my mind's eye. I must think about how she can be strengthened, encouraged, blessed, and built stronger. I must think of special, meaningful ways to express my adoration, my respect, and my love. And I mustn't skimp on these expressions. Number 10, the affectionate, the intimate, otherwise known as the lover. I must be the sort of husband that is trustworthy with my wife's innermost feelings, thoughts, and concerns. I must be trustworthy up close to handle her heart with the utmost care, to handle her inmost person with heavenly delicacy and softness. I must be the man she wants to love and be near, not the man she is just supposed to love and be near. And finally, number 11, the empathizer, the sharer of sufferings. When my wife is hit with any difficulty, tribulation, or trial, I will carry it with her. And if at all possible for her, I feel her pain because her pain is my pain. Her heartache is my heartache. 
Her concerns are my concerns, and her sufferings are my sufferings. Have you ever seen that exemplified better than in Jesus Christ? He is the ultimate groom, and we are called to love our spouses that way. The impossibility of intimacy. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. That's who shall ascend into intimacy with the Most High God. And all of us in this room can't do it. Every single one of us is blocked out, except for the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has made a way for us to ascend the hill, the high mountain of God, and to enter boldly into his throne room of grace. The passion for intimacy. And he arose. Remember the prodigal? The prodigal has spent his life frivolously taken that inheritance and wasted it. I don't know what you've done with your gold mine, but it's possible that you're sort of like that prodigal. Wasted! It's disgusting! And he's now feeding with the pigs! But he gets up and says he'd rather be a slave or a servant in his father's house. So from a long way off, guess who's fogging up the windows looking for him? You see, God has the passion for intimacy. It's not just you. It started with him. He's the one that called you to intimacy. He wants you near. And what does the father do? He arose and came to his father. Oh, that's talking about uh, the son. Sorry, I got excited about the wrong part of it. So the son arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Isn't that amazing? That's the attitude of the father. He has a passion for intimacy. The provision for intimacy. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw near unto God. Oh, I don't think we get it. To be honest, I don't think we fully understand what it means to be intimate with the Most High God. However, let's start hanging out in that mind, and let's start searching for gold, and let's fully gain the value of the inheritance that we've received. Intimacy, drawing near with perfect confidence. There's our definitions, nearness, affectionate friendship, sharing the inmost. Sharing the inmost, revealing that which is inward, innermost. Jesus gave up his spirit. Remember this word? Paradidomai, to give into the hands. This is what it means. And I want us to ponder our relationship with Jesus Christ. Are we willing to entrust our lives to him in the same manner Jesus entrusted his life to the Father? And are we willing to share our life with those that we love the way Jesus shared his life? But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. So let me give you the secret to intimacy with God. Jesus. The method by which he offered intimacy. The cross. Now brace yourselves for this one. This might come as somewhat of a surprise. I'm going to give you the secret to intimacy with your spouse. Jesus. Uh, by the way, the method by which he offered this intimacy? The cross. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't just solve your spiritual life. It solves every aspect of your life. You see, intimacy is intimacy. And it works God's way. Heavenly intimacy is only found in a heavenly work known as the cross. And when you enter into that heavenly work, you have access to this gold mine. Even if your marriage stinks right now, you have access to a gold mine. I recognize you've probably battened up the outside. You're going to have some 
some work to do to access that intimacy again. But I want you to begin that labor. Go after it. You've been given something special. Don't take it for granted. It is good for me to draw near to God. What a statement. Is that the understatement of universal history? It is good for me to draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Turn to Jesus. You see, ironically, he's already made the way, but he needs us to enter into that blood clothing, that righteousness. And what is he able to do? He's able to then fill us with his spirit. He's like, draw near to me, please. He's already done the work. He's drawn near to us. But there is still a blockage. But faith overcomes that. When we turn unto his work and we believe, we draw near unto him. And as a result, he pours out his life on us. He's waiting. Have you ever heard that, that song, Mercy Came A-Running? It's like it's standing behind the veil and it's waiting for the shed blood. And once that shed blood is done, mercy comes a-running. Oh, like a prisoner set free, past all my failures to my, the point of my need. I love that mental picture. Mercy running, intimacy, the grace of God sprinting towards us. Give him an inch, he'll take a mile. He wants you. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, and it came to pass that while they communed together in reason, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Oh. What a thought. As we commune together, he draws near and goes with us. He wants to be near. Let's show Jesus, the one who wants to be near us, let's show that attribute unto those we love. Let's show that unto our spouses afresh today. Some of us need to make some things right. Let's show it to our children afresh today. I want to spend time with Think creatively about how you can do it, too. I've never felt so blocked in my creativity as when Leslie says something like, you haven't done anything romantic for me in a while. And suddenly I can't think of anything romantic at all. <laughs> However, I don't ever want to get, where Leslie has to get to that point where she ever needs to say that. I want the grace of God even for remembrance, even for that sensitivity to where my wife's at to say, you know what, when I get up early in the morning to write her a love note, Dear Lord Jesus, don't let me forget why I'm doing this. Let me remember those around me. Because when you're in ministry, you could very easily focus on a lot of other important things and miss that which is most important. Let's not do that today in any of our lives. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.